0: Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 14 this morning. Matthew 14. message is entitled, the Walking on the Water this morning. Walking on the Water. We're going to be looking at this really amazing miracle. And this is, a, this is an interesting miracle, the miracle of Jesus walking on the water. It appears in only three of the Gospels. But it is in many ways Jesus' signature miracle, his signature miracle. And what I mean by that is it is is the miracle that I think is most often associated with Jesus. People think about Jesus, they they think about this amazing miracle of walking on the water. And in fact, I think that's one of the reasons why it is often a focal point of, of skeptical attack upon the veracity of the New Testament. Those who do not believe and accept the word of God as inerrant often postulate when coming to this miracle that Jesus pulled off a great deception. That he did not walk on the water. In fact, what many of them postulate is that there, were, uh, there was either a sandbar or there was, uh, there was some sort of uh, hidden reef or stepping stones under the water and that Jesus knew where they were. And so he just took advantage of the natural terrain and and wasn't walking on the water at all. And poor Peter, he just didn't know, you know, where to put his foot. And I don't know about you, but I think that is absolutely nonsense. And I think the amount of faith necessary to believe such foolishness, in light of the clear teaching of the Word of God, is actually staggering. But this is an interesting miracle: Jesus walking on the water. It is common knowledge. And I think because it is common knowledge, it, it has sort of passed into our culture. Years ago when I used to work in banking, and I think the expression probably still finds its way into the business world, people will talk about a particular employee or, or candidate for, for a job who is, who is really quite outstanding in their abilities as a water walker. We need to hire this person. They are a, a water walker. Sometimes the, uh, the expression finds itself in, the, in a business context when people will use it to, to speak of their own limitations, particularly if uh, they have failed to, uh, to accomplish a certain set of tasks that has been assigned to them. They, they will uh, rely on this miracle as their defense for not accomplishing what, what their job required, and that is they will say something like, well, I can't walk on water. Right, And so that will be their their reason they didn't get their work done. Well, I want to let you in on a secret this morning. Okay, you ready? Listen carefully. I'm going to let you in on a secret. Uh, There were only two men who ever walked on water. Only two. And one of them only lasted for a a moment or two. The truth of the matter is, uh, and the point of it all is, that nobody can walk on water but the Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody can walk on water. I have pulled enough kids out of my swimming pool through the years to know this to be an absolute reality. They have tried, but they can't walk on water. This is, it stands out among Jesus' miracles, I think, as as a clear and cogent sign of the divinity of Jesus Christ. This is a miracle that that just screams divinity, the godness, if you will, of Jesus Christ. Beyond that, it speaks of his right to rule as the great messianic king. So as we look at the text this morning, and we will be looking at verses 22 through 33, I just have a simple two-part outline for you, It's just a really simple outline, And it will allow us to work our way through the events of that really unforgettable evening. An unforgettable evening. The first simple part of this outline is this it's in verses 22 and 23, and it's this that Jesus diffuses the situation. Jesus diffuses the situation. Matthew writes here in verse 22 that immediately he, that is Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. This is a continuation of the, of the events of, uh, that we looked at last week of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus had fed this, uh, this amazing crowd of, of 5,000 men plus women and children, and as we said last time, perhaps as many as fifteen to 20,000 individuals, fed from a boy's lunch, a few tortillas and a couple of sardines, an amazing creation miracle by which Jesus created food enough to feed this massive crowd and enough that there were 12 doggy bags left over for the disciples to take home and ponder and reflect upon. But the result of this miracle was that the crowds were caught up in a messianic fever, John is very clear to point that out in John chapter 6 and in verse 15. He says that that at this point, the the crowds, they want to take Jesus by force and make him king. This this feeding miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, has washed over them and steeped in their own carnality, their own faithlessness, their own refusal of the the spiritual requirements that Jesus has been consistently laying down for, low two years now about the requirement that that in order to enter Messiah's kingdom, one must come through the door of repentance and faith. They've washed all that aside, and they want to take this miracle worker, and they want to make him king. And who wouldn't? Who wouldn't want a king who... uh, could feed you whenever you got hungry, right? You don't need to tax the people. Just create food, create money, you know, take care of us. And so they want to make him king. But Jesus wants nothing to do with this. This is a shallow attachment to him. This is a carnal attachment to him. This is a faithless attachment to him, and he wants nothing to do with it. Beyond that, Jesus knows that that if this movement begins to gather some steam and they start talking about him being the king, making him the king, that he will find himself and his small band of followers in direct opposition to the Roman authorities. You remember just a little bit earlier here in the chapter, it, it talked about Herod having John the Baptist executed. And, and one of the reasons Josephus tells us that, that John well, the Baptist was executed by Herod was because Herod was afraid of John and his, his persuasive powers over the people that it was going to result in a rebellion. And so he had him arrested and ultimately had him executed there in the prison. And so Jesus knows that, that this, this superficial, politically oriented drive to make him king has to be stopped. It has to be stopped. Jesus would have no part of man's carnal plans to somehow sit him on the throne of the nation of Israel. He is the king. He will sit on his throne, but it will be in God's timing and in God's way. You see it very, very clearly. Jesus says it as much in in John chapter 18. John 18, when he is standing before Pilate, verses 36 and 37. Pilate wants to know, so, you know, are you a king or not? Not? And Jesus answers and he says, my kingdom is not of this world. That is, my kingdom doesn't originate in the way the kingdoms of this world originate. If my kingdom were of this world, if my kingdom were to to come in the way that worldly kingdoms come, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king, for this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Of course, Pilate in his cynicism says, what is truth, right? And thus crucifies his own soul. Jesus will have no part of this earthly effort to overthrow Rome and to establish him under the terms of an unbelieving nation as king of Israel. So he has to diffuse this situation. He has to put an end to it. And he he needs to move quickly. He needs to move quickly. And that's exactly what is indicated here. He acts with haste. You see it, verse 22, Matthew 14, immediately. He doesn't wait. Immediately. He made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. Notice that it says he made the disciples get into the boat. You see that? He didn't say, You guys, you want to get in the boat? It's a nice day for a a row. It's actually a very, very, very strong Greek word. Could easily be translated He compelled them to get into the boats. You kind of get this idea. He looked at him and he said, get in the boat. Get in the boat and get out of here. And get out of here. He wants them in the boat and he wants them to move out. Why does he want that? He wants them to get away from these crowds. He does not want his, his disciples to get drawn into this. He doesn't want his disciples thinking to become polluted by these notions That this is maybe the way to achieve his kingship. It's very seductive. It's very appealing. You know, who doesn't want to be hoisted onto someone's shoulders, right? And and paraded around like like the quarterback at the end of the Super Bowl, the winning team? Jesus knows that his disciples are vulnerable. So the last thing he wants is for them to get drawn into this. And so he dismisses them. He, he moves them out very, very quickly. It also provides him with the, with the opportunity, the time, to, to do what he originally intended to do when, when they got into the boat and they traveled across the, the Sea of Galilee, across the lake there, to, to arrive at this secluded place, verse 13. Jesus had withdrawn to a secluded place. Now, you remember, when he got there, the crowds were there. They, they had heard, overheard, perhaps, him, their plans, and they had, they had gotten there ahead of him, so he gets off the boat, the crowds are there, the, the needy are there, and Jesus puts his plans on the shelf, and he, and he ministers all day long to these people. But that wasn't why he went there. He went there so, so that he could be alone so that he would have some time to pray. So he, he wants to get rid of the crowds, and he wants to get rid of the disciples. Furthermore, he wants, to, he wants the disciples to have some time to, to ponder what they have just witnessed in the feeding of the 5,000. They need to think about it. They need to internalize it. They need to, to consider its implications. So he puts them in the boat, and he, and he puts the 12 doggy bags with them, and he sends them off. The idea is, think about it, guys. Think about this whole situation. Who am I? Who am I? We know this is uh, true, by the way, um, not speculating on this, but to Mark's gospel in a parallel account, Mark 6:52, Mark says that, uh, that actually uh, they had not done what Jesus intended to ponder on it, to consider its implications, to, to understand its, the, the, what was being taught by it all. Mark says they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves. I know it's hard to believe, particularly for us who are so spiritually minded. They're in the boat, rowing away, with a doggy bag at their feet, and they, and they miss the whole point. But they were not supposed to miss the point. They were supposed to get the point. So he sends the disciples away. He sends the crowds away. Because his original intent in going there was to pray, to be alone. Verse 23, after he would sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself, to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. Jesus wanted, Jesus needed time alone to pray. And so he dismisses all the distractions so that he can be alone to pray. Now, how long did he pray? That's where it gets really interesting. According to verse 25, it says, in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. Verse 23, he went by himself to pray and, and it was evening. I told you last week that the, the Greek word used here, translated evening, can, can refer to any time from, you know, sort of middle of the afternoon and, until after the sunset. That's probably speaking after the, sort of the sunset time here. Now the Roman world was, uh, was divided. They, they divided it into what they call watches. So from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., the, the Roman world was divided into four watches. Okay? So they had four three-hour watches. And if, uh, if you were on guard duty, you know, you'd be on guard duty for three hours, and then you'd be relieved, and another watch would, would come. This miracle, we're told here, takes place in the fourth watch of the night, verse 25. What well, that means is that it's sometime between 3 and 6 o'clock in the morning. 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Now Jesus had started praying at sunset, verse 23. He comes walking on the water in the fourth watch of the night, sometimes after three in the morning. How long did Jesus pray? Try nine hours. Try nine hours. It's a long time to be alone. What did he pray about for nine hours? We don't know. The answer is, we don't really know. We could speculate, and I don't mind doing that. I think in, in light of the context of, of what's happening here, I suspect that, that he is wrestling with his father over the, the progress of the messianic mission. The rejection that he has is, is received and is receiving all over Galilee. I suspect that that he's calling out to his his father for help to sustain him. I suspect he's he's praying for his disciples, that that they don't get caught up in this messianic fever and and get drawn off or become afraid of the religious authorities and, and pull back. I suspect he's praying about the father to give him reassurance That this is indeed the path that he must walk. I don't know for sure. But I suspect these are the kinds of things that that occupied him alone on that mountain. As he prayed for nine hours. Jesus diffuses the situation. Secondly. Jesus displays his sovereignty. Now we get into the miracle itself. Jesus displays his sovereignty. Sovereignty, verse 24. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for so the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now, I don't know about you, but, but I think one of the amazing things about this account of the miracle and the, the corresponding accounts and the other gospels is the way it's presented without a lot of build-up, a lot of fanfare. And In fact, it's sort of presented as kind of a practical solution to an immediate problem. That's how it comes across. In other words, Jesus needs to be reunited with his disciples, and so the shortest distance between any two points is a straight line. So that's how he gets there. This is, this is what happened, I think. Just trying to put together clues. He had, he had evidently sent his disciples away. Mark chapter 6 verse 45 says he, he had sent them to Bethsaida. Now Bethsaida just is on the eastern shore just a, a little bit north of where they were where the, the feeding of the 5,000 took place because that took place in a secluded area. And so I think what basically happened is, is he had put his disciples in the boat and he had said, okay, you guys take off, row up the coastline here till you get to Beseda and wait for me. I'm going up on the mountain and pray. When I finish praying, I won't be long. I'll come and meet you in Beseda, and then we'll, we'll get into the boat and we'll cross over to Capernaum. So they did. The problem is that... Uh, Jesus prayed longer than everybody thought, longer than he had planned. And so uh, the disciples eventually set out for Capernaum. It's about three to four miles west of where they are in Bethsaida. But a storm comes up. A storm came up and, and it blew them off course. And it, and it drastically slowed their process. So, so, according to John chapter 6 and verse 19, they had, they had proceeded three to four miles by this time. They'd been rowing all night long, but they only had to go about three miles. But they were right into the teeth of the storm. It says here that, that there was a headwind. The wind was contrary. The idea is there's a headwind. It's coming from the west. It's pouring down from the high ground of Galilee on the west. And it's funneling through the canyons that occupy the north shores there, the Sea of Galilee, the lake there. And as it comes through the canyons, it intensifies. And it hits the surface of the water. And it tears it up and it and it begins to really churn the water, and there's there's these massive waves, and they're and they're battering the rowboat, and there's a there's a headwind against them, and they're just not making any progress. In fact, they're even blown off course. All right, they're a long distance from the land, verse 24. Then there's Jesus. He's finally finished praying. You know, he says, Amen. Now he's got to join his disciples, and, and, and so he sets off. Shortest distance between any two points, he's going to meet him in Capernaum. Straight line, he starts out across the water. Mark tells us, Mark chapter 6, verse 48, he was intending to pass them by. Kind of interesting, huh? See you guys. You know, catch you catch when you get there. You're going to meet them on the other side. And it's at this point, as he's he's walking on the water, just making his way to Capernaum, that he encounters the disciples, and and he encounters Peter, and and they encounter him. And this encounter is going to be unlike anything that they have ever experienced in, in their entire lives and in all their time with Jesus. This is going to be something else. Because at the end of this, at the end of this encounter, they are going to voice the most remarkable confession of faith. It's going to be stunning. But first, Peter and, by extension, the rest of the disciples are going to get rebuked by Jesus. Jesus. So on the fourth watch of the nine, verse 25, he, he, he's walking on the water. And the disciples uh, saw him walking on the sea. And they were terrified. No kidding. And they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. They see him. And at this point in this moment in time, they are, they are possessed by an irrational fear. They do not know what to make of this. They call it a ghost. It's just not in their paradigm. Walking on the water. Nobody walks on the water. Here he is, you know, walking on the water. And they're undone. They are undone by what they see. But immediately, verse 27, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he says, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. They are undone. They are, they are, they are gripped by an irrational fear of what they've seen. And, and Jesus speaks to them immediately, and just tenderness and compassion and, and he calms their fears. And he and he calms their fears by by saying it's me. It's, it's me. Don't be afraid. Be of good courage. It, it's me. It's I. And then Peter speaks. By the way, through, throughout the rest of the gospel now, pretty much um, Peter is going to become the mouthpiece for the disciples. Okay, we really, we're really glad for Peter. Because Peter will say what they're thinking. Okay? Peter will end up taking the hits uh, for them. And for us. Okay? So Peter, Peter speaks. He, he becomes the spokesman of the apostles right at this time. And he, and he speaks in a way that is, and acts in a way that is really kind of characteristic of all of them, and that is that they are, they are this convoluted combination of, of, of belief and unbelief. Now, that's encouraging to me, because I am a convoluted combination of belief and unbelief. How about you? Right? I, I'm, I'm like this, this mixed-up thing. That's what they are. That's what I am. That's what you are. Now, Peter's not willing to get out of the boat, evidently, unless Jesus directly tells him to do it, right? Verse 28. Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Don't you find that kind of, uh, I mean, that's, that's an expression of faith, don't you think? Command me to come to you on the water. I mean, Peter should be commended in this. The problem is, is once he begins to act in obedience to the command, he finds that his, his faith begins to falter. All right, he, he takes his eyes off Jesus, right? Verse 30, seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. What a a wonderfully human and identifiable man Peter is. He's got strong faith. Faith enough to get out of the boat. And then he has weak faith because there's not strong enough to sustain him once he does. The rest of the 11, what are they doing? You know, they're kind of hanging on to the the gunnels, right? None of them are saying, you know, tell me to get out and I'll do it. Immediately, verse 31, Jesus stretches out his hand and and takes hold of, of him and he says to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Oh, come on now. Doesn't that seem like at first glance, maybe that's a little harsh. I mean, after all, Peter got out of the boat. But Jesus criticizes him. It's a, it's a kind of a strong uh, expression here. You have little faith, basically. You know, hey, midget faith. You know that. It's kind of the Greek expression there, midget faith. And in criticizing Peter, I, I believe by extension he's criticizing all the disciples. And he's criticizing them for, for an inadequate faith, a, a faith that, that demonstrates itself in doubting. Doubting. Interesting word here, doubting. It, it, it's not so much conveying a, a theological uncertainty or, or, or unbelief, but, but more like a practical hesitation. The idea of wavering, of being of two minds at the same time. That's Peter's problem, right? He's faith enough to get out of the boat, but when he's out of the boat, not faith enough to to continue to keep his eyes on Jesus and be sustained in this. So it's this back and forth, wavering, doubting, two-minded, double-minded kind of thing. See, Peter's problem is not a lack of intellectual conviction. Peter's problem is is there's a conflict going on between the, the evidence of his senses and the invitation of Jesus. And boy, can I identify with that. Boy, can I identify with that. Right, the word of God, and everything I see, everything I feel, everything I hear. I get tossed to and fro, and so do you. So do you. This uh, this uh, interesting word here, translated doubting it. It's only used on one other time in the New Testament, interestingly, and Matthew is the one who records it for us, and it's in Matthew 28. Take you over there, verse, uh, verse 17 is where it appears. But Matthew 28, verses 16 and 17, this is after the, uh, the resurrection of Jesus, right? And he, is, he has been with them for a period of time. Verse 16, Matthew 28, uh, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. Same word. Some were were, um, of two minds. Some were hesitant. Some were having problems reconciling the the conflicting evidences of their senses and, and the Word of God. Very, very human place to be for believers. Very, very human place. Natural place. Understandable place at one level. Yet not a commendable place. Jesus rebukes him. And beloved, I think by extension, he rebukes us when we find ourselves in a similar set of circumstances where we are wavering, where we are double-minded, where we are are having trouble, getting bounced around by the truth of the Word of God and what our senses are telling us, what feels right, what, what we want to do, what everybody else is doing, whatever it might be. So immediately Jesus stretches out his hand and he, and he takes hold of them, right? Verse 32, and they get into the boat and the wind stops. How far did Peter walk on the water? We don't know. The text doesn't say. It doesn't say. It does say, though, that once uh, Jesus grabs his hand, the, the two of them are in the boat and the wind stops. Interestingly, John 6.21 adds that not only did the wind stop, but immediately the boat is at Capernaum. Just lends further to the understatement of this amazing miracle. Right? The wind stops and the boat arrives at its destination. But when he gets into that boat, and the wind stops. Maybe when they arrive at Capernaum, maybe before, uh, you know, we're not can't be sure, but 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 notice what happens. Verse 33, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. They have just seen a display of the sovereign power of God that defies explanation and description. And so what do they do? They fall down proskuneo is the Greek word, they fall down and worship. They fall at his feet. They bow low before him and they give him the kind of worship that rightfully belongs only to deity. At that moment in time, they become convinced. You are certainly, they say, truly, would be another way to express it. They are convinced, you are much more than a man. You're God's son. Now how much they understood of what they just said, it's hard to know. I mean, just a little bit later, right, they're going to to be in Caesarea Philippi, and and, and Peter is going to confess that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus is going to say, you know, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven revealed that to you. So he's going to make a confession that's way better than what he knows. A fuller confession. But here there there is an amazing confession that that has been made. And don't miss the point by the way that, that Jesus doesn't say stand up. Get up off your knees. Right? The only one that can be worshiped is who? Is God. People say well, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, actually he did. And he also demonstrated in a number of places and this is one of them that he knew he was God. Cuz he received the worship due only to God. It was right. For them to do this. And he accepts it. He receives it. You are certainly God's son. Now, it's not all over for them, to be sure. They've made a step forward, a major step forward. But they're about to fall two or three steps back. Again, how can we, you know, we can so identify with that, can't we? This is a. This is a. a it's like watching a, a, a one-year-old learn to walk. You know, they're kind of careening around and and uh, in their faith. Sometimes they'll speak better than they know, and then they'll then, then they'll turn back around and and they'll and they'll do something that is that sort of contradicts everything they've just said. Unless we be too hard on them, it's it's often our experience too. But they have, this is a major incremental step for them. They, they have a growing understanding of who the person of Jesus is. It's going to continue to grow. It's going to continue to develop. It's going to continue to fill out and until after his resurrection, right, and at his ascension, he'll send them to, to turn the world upside down, and that's what they'll do. They're not ready for it yet. But a very, very important lesson has been learned. What about us? Where do we go with all this, right? We know the end of the story, amen? I mean, they're in the story. We've, we've, uh, we've got the benefit of standing outside it. We, we know the end. So our, our growth in, in understanding the person of Jesus Christ benefits from standing on their shoulders. What they learned, we have learned. But we still need to be reminded of truth. We need to be reminded of truth. And I think that's how I want to just kind of finish this this morning. Is take just a little bit of time and and remind you of the story. All the way through to the end. Who is this one? Who are you? And, And what have you come to do? So some time ago, I, I wrote down a, a series of kind of propositions that sort of spell it out. I'm just going to quickly review them for you. I think we have them as, as slides. So, so as, as these truths, just, as you just kind of listen and, and look, let the Spirit of God use them to, to bathe your heart, and particularly as we're going to be turning to the, to the Lord's Supper here soon, and let this truth resonate with You, you ready? Here we go. First. While you were in open defiance against your Creator, He, in His mercy, reached out to you, providing an innocent substitute to bear the penalty for your sin. That substitute was His own Son, who willingly died in your place, rising again in accordance with the eternal plan of God, whereby God had graciously decided to save his own enemies. Third, because you had no interest in him, God sought you out, and through his Holy Spirit created the faith you needed to embrace his gift for you. In effecting your salvation, God not only freed you from the penalty of your sin, but also from its enslavement, granting you access to the power necessary to say no to sin's enticements. But when you fail to say no to sin and reject God's will for you, he feels no wrath toward you, but floods you with his grace. In order to maintain your justification. Conversely. When you reject sin's allure. God's love for you does not increase. Isn't that wonderful? His love for you did not end with your salvation. But extends to every circumstance and difficulty of life. Whereby he subjugates them and forces them to do you good. He rules over all. Someday. Someday God will remove you from this life. Either by death or Christ's triumphant return. And your struggle against sin will cease. At that point. At that point. You will enjoy unhindered fellowship. With your creator. Redeemer. And friend. Beloved, that's what Jesus has done for us. Praise God for a salvation so comprehensive, so powerful, so free. If you have not received the gift of eternal life, Jesus offers it to you even now if you will but there in your seat, in the the privacy of your own mind, if you will confess to him, God, I have been in rebellion against you. I I have tried to run life my own way. And I have failed to rule myself and everything else. I, I have made a mess of it. But I believe Jesus came. I believe Jesus is your son. I believe Jesus died in my place and and took the penalty that was mine. Please, please forgive me for Jesus' sake. Help me to to live pleasing to you from, from this point forward. If you pray that prayer, believing in your heart, truth of who Christ is and God will save you. Let's pray. Our Father, we are amazed, absolutely amazed when we encounter Christ in the pages of Holy Scripture. O oh Lord, may you work in us To increase our faith, to help us in the midst of the difficulties of life when we are blown around, uh, the storms assail us. Help us, O Lord, to believe, to hang on to Christ, to trust your word. O Lord, for anyone here this morning who is in that place where they have yet to know Jesus. May your spirit work in them even at this moment and and create in their heart the, the faith they need to believe. And let us come to this table together to proclaim the reality of the death, burial, and resurrection and future coming of Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.